When Meghan and Harry spoke with Oprah Winfrey back in March 2021, Meghan did something that needed a bit of explanation to many Americans. She called the royal family the firm. I don't know how they could expect that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there is an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And if that comes with risk... Prince Philip used to refer to the royals as the firm, which makes it sound very businesslike, and it kind of is. Up until this point in the series, we've explored the dynamics at play among the Windsors and their relationships, but the monarchy isn't just a family. It's an institution. Monarchy Inc., if you like. It requires teams of courtiers and staff working alongside the principals to keep the palace machine smoothly running behind the scenes. And it's not a thing the family normally talks about in public. In fact, the term can be traced back to King George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father. He supposedly told a person at Cambridge back in 1920 that the royals are not a family, we're a firm. Colin Firth uses the phrase in the King's speech while portraying George VI. This family has been reduced to those lowest basis of all creatures. We've become actors. We're not a family, we're a firm. Yet at any moment, some of us may be out of work. While many European monarchies have fallen over the course of centuries, the British royal family has survived for nearly a thousand years. And perhaps that's because it operates like a firm. To understand the royal family, you really need to understand the business and how it's organized. In this episode, we'll hear from Robert Hazell on how much influence the Queen really has. And we'll speak with Princess Diana's former private secretary, Patrick Jefferson, who shares what it's really like to work for the firm. And Ewan Relly breaks down the Crown's finances and explains just where the money comes from. I'm Katie Nicholl. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. From Vanity Fair, this is Dynasty, The Windsors. Episode 8, The Firm's Foot Soldiers. Who really controls the Crown? There is quite a lot of money, isn't there? Yeah, Erin, there's so much money. Sometimes when people say the firm, they're just talking about the working members of the family. But behind the big names are hundreds of people who make up the royal institution. Those famous Buckingham Palace balcony photos actually work pretty well as an org chart for the firm. It's headed by the monarch who stands in the middle. Below the Queen are the core group of working royals. The press calls them the Magnificent Seven. It's Charles, Camilla, Kate and William, Sophie and Edward, and Anne. They help with the Queen's duties, support the monarchy, and attend royal appearances. And then there are lots of discreet-looking faces you might not recognize. Historically, they've been referred to as the men in grey suits. This expression, men in suits, keeps being used in a derogatory way to describe, I suppose, courtiers or people like me. I did wear a suit. This is Patrick Jefferson, who was Princess Diana's private secretary. That suggests that there is this rather shadowy organisation that makes royal people do things they don't want to do. That couldn't be further from the truth. Because courtiers are contractually bound not to speak publicly about what they do, there's a lot of intrigue about them. Some of my best sources, Erin, are former courtiers because they have seen the actual workings of the royal family and know how it really operates, which makes their insight so valuable. 
And while the monarchy is a large-scale organisation with the Queen acting, I suppose, think of her as CEO, it's not the case that the Queen is the sole decision-maker. Those men in grey suits, although can I just point out that there are a lot of brilliant women at the palace these days, they play a really vital role in the day-to-day running of the palace machine. The royal household is not a single command and control organisation. It's not directed from the top. You might think that the Queen sits in a sort of mission control room and decides where everybody goes and what they do. Actually, it's more of a federation and everybody more or less decides how they are going to interpret their duties as a member of the royal family. It is, after all, a family and family members are left to interpret their roles pretty much without direction from above. The most important royals are known as principals, and they have their own households and their own agendas. It's a hierarchy based on the line of succession and the scale of royal work, as you might expect. But while the various households have the same goal, which is, of course, supporting Her Majesty the Queen, it can get competitive. These household units are named after the royal residences where their operations are based. The Queen has Buckingham Palace, Prince Charles and Camilla have Clarence House, And Kensington Palace is currently William and Kate. But in 2014, it was decided to merge the Clarence House and Buckingham Palace press offices. But shortly afterwards, they went back to operating as two different departments. The idea of being in-house, or in this case, in the palace together, made sense financially, but it didn't work. And I think it was because Clarence House has always operated differently to Buckingham Palace. They have different principles, different agendas, and different ways of doing things. I remember being told by one courtier at Clarence House how they would put so much effort into prepping and promoting an engagement compared to Buckingham Palace, whose press office would do very little comparatively when the Queen was turning up. It was a case of, it's the Queen. How much PR do we really need to do? But more time and energy was needed to go into Charles and what he was doing. So when you look at Buckingham Palace on top and Clarence House and Kensington Palace and all of that underneath, it's a bit like an umbrella company with a bunch of subsidiary ventures. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it, Erin. Buckingham Palace is HQ and everyone answers to the Queen. And it's a business. There's an IT service desk. There's an HR department, budgets, bosses, and a plethora of staff. But unlike other types of businesses where the main goal is profit... The goal of the royal institution is the promotion and smooth running of the monarchy. The firm's primary function is to keep the royal engine moving, assisting the royals in completing their constitutional duties and their public engagements. But the trickier mission is ensuring the royal family's popularity, which is, of course, crucial to its survival. And that takes an unwavering commitment to duty from the royals themselves, but also the experience of their highly skilled staff. You mentioned those constitutional duties. One of the elements of this that can get confusing, and it's especially unfamiliar for Americans, is the way that the royal establishment overlaps with the government. The Queen has lots of symbolic power, but in terms of real power, she has next to none. Robert Hazell is Professor of Government and Constitution at University College London. Famously, it's been said that the Queen reigns, but she does not rule. And everything the Queen does, she does on the advice of the government of the day. It's been said that she has just three rights, to be consulted, to encourage and to warn. 
And she does that in a weekly audience with the Prime Minister, who every week goes to see her one evening in Buckingham Palace. And nobody knows what influence she might have, because those meetings with the Prime Minister are completely private and no record is kept. The weekly audience is one main part of the job. The other two are keeping up with government business and attending various events. In that now elusive 1969 royal family documentary, you see the queen going through her red box of papers, thinking about them and signing them before giving an award to poet Robert Graves and going out on the town to greet regular citizens. This is what she does for the government, and her family is a part of this too. There are a total of 1,000 to 2,000 events each year, definitely something the queen cannot do on her own. This is what the working royals do. They share this load and divide up these engagements. And the people who work for them facilitate this. So this is no ordinary job. How do they even find people who are qualified to do this? Well, traditionally, many of the royal aides have come from aristocratic or military backgrounds. Patrick Jesson, for example, followed the military path to join the Wales household in 1988. There is a tribal loyalty between the British Armed Forces and the monarchy. When I joined the Navy, I was commissioned. And being a commissioned officer means that you are exercising authority in the name of the crown. It's more than just uh, symbolic. The British government exercises military power in the name of the sovereign. British soldiers and sailors and airmen fight the Queen's enemies, not the Prime Minister's enemies. After two years as an equerry, which is a military aide who assists a working royal, Patrick moved up to one of the most influential roles in a royal household, private secretary. The difference between an equerry and a private secretary is actually quite significant in royal organisational terms. It, it equates really to chief of staff in American terms. You are there to run your royal boss's programme, their lives. And for Patrick, his job came along with many challenges and a lot of excitement. Um, as David Putnam, Lord Putnam, the Oscar-winning film producer, said to me, you are the producer of The Diana Show. And that's a pretty good interpretation of my job as Diana's private secretary. It wasn't entertainment. It wasn't celebrity. It had an important constitutional function. But I was there to make it all happen or <laughs> to look at it the, the, the converse. If it didn't happen, or if it didn't happen properly, it was my fault, even if it wasn't my fault. It was, it's one of the perks of the job. You are there to absorb all the bad news as well as uh, enjoy the good news. So the private secretaries are the top tier advisors to the royals. It's a really important job and they are very close to the principals because their job is essentially to strategize and plan. Then there are the communications or press secretaries who deal with PR and the media. It's important to know that even though they are all under the umbrella of the palace to some extent, these households don't always communicate or collaborate. Each principal has their own secretaries and they're employed personally, and really, they work on different teams. In fact, sometimes the royals themselves communicate through their secretaries, which has its problems as well as its benefits. In December 2019, Harry wanted to speak to his grandmother about some of the problems that he and Meghan were having in the palace. He said that he kept trying to schedule meetings with the Queen, but her secretary canceled on him. Katie, it would be like if you and I just spoke to each other through our producers. Which would be very strange. And it was strange, I suppose, as Patrick Jefferson discovered when he became Princess Diana's private secretary back in 1990. Princess Diana, knowing that she and Prince Charles were 
set on separation, asked me to leave the Navy and join the household permanently to set up and run her office. Up to that point, she had had a shared office with the Prince of Wales. We were supposed to be one big happy family. And now we weren't one big happy family and Diana wanted her own, her own office. She said to me, Patrick, we're going to go conquer the world. And so that made it relatively easy for me to resign from the Navy and start what I considered was going to be my lifetime's career working for her. She was not, don't forget, uh, always going to be Princess of Wales. She was due to be Queen Diana and might have been Queen Diana at a moment's notice. And my job was to help her prepare for that role as Joint Head of State. Preparing someone for that sort of role is no small task. Working for Princess Diana was a mixture of really uh, demanding daily grind, making a complicated programme work smoothly. Diana was appeared obviously to be very accessible, to be very spontaneous, but that required an awful lot of work behind the scenes. There is this notion that Diana was somehow casual about things like protocol. Got to correct that. She knew her protocol to her fingertips. What you saw was when she decided to relax it. That was a conscious decision. It was not because she didn't understand the importance of protocol or its value in promoting her and the royal brand. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> When you think of the monarchy, you think of wealth, the crown jewels, splendid palaces, and estates worth millions of pounds. Exactly. And without it, things just wouldn't feel the same. Who would the queen be without her pearls? Well, the queen may not own all of the finery personally. The crown jewels, for example, belong to the nation, as does the royal collection of paintings, which are held in trust for the public. But the queen controls it and oversees the upkeep. Of course, the money to fund all of the work of the monarchy has to come from somewhere. And controversially, that includes some contributions from the British taxpayer. The royal family costs about one or two pounds per person per year. This is Ewan Relly, a British investment banker who has some first-hand knowledge of the aristocracy. I've, I've spent a, a bit of time at Balmoral and at Windsor and at Buckingham Palace and I guess I've seen seen them in action. We used to have the beagles and they'd go and run around Windsor Great Park and we'd go and have tea with the Queen Mother afterwards. Ewan has a better understanding of the workings of the royal family than most and was able to talk us through how the royal finances work. I, I'm not an apologist for the royal family. I don't think they're perfect at all, but I don't think they are, on the whole, 
the central members of the family at least are not money grubbing they're not trying to accumulate wealth but i think i think the queen has a sense of duty i think she has unimaginable wealth um but i don't think she would ever try to monetize it the queen is given a single payment by the government every year called the sovereign grant now in 2021 this amount was set at 85.9 million pounds think about it as the equivalent of 1 pound 29 per person in the uk Money for the grant comes from the profits of the Crown Estate, a property business owned by the monarch but run independently. It includes Ascot Racecourse and quite a bit of Regent Street in London. The royal family typically receives 15% of the estate's income every year, and the rest goes to the British Treasury. So the grant that the Queen receives, which is called the Sovereign Grant, is used by the Queen and other members of the royal family for official expenses. That's staff costs, travel, housekeeping and maintenance costs. It also covers the upkeep of occupied royal palaces. In return, there's the argument that they contribute to the wider economy. In other words, they bring in tourists. In a legal filing, the Duchess of Sussex lawyers estimated that her 2018 wedding to Prince Harry contributed one billion pounds to the British economy. So I think that people come to England for sure because they like uh, Buckingham Palace and they want to have different royal experiences, whether it's going and seeing, you know, the Queen's pictures in the royal collection next to Buckingham Palace or whether it's standing outside Buckingham Palace and, and watching the changing of the garden and going and spending money at having tea at Claridge's or whatever whatever it is, you know, low, low end or high end. I think um, the royal family absolutely is perceived as being a draw Um, a commercial draw globally. But despite the return, the money from the public alone can't cover the lifestyle that we associate the Queen with. But um, but obviously she indulges herself in racehorses and things, and so there's some luxury along, along the way. Well, this is where the Duchy of Lancaster, that's the Queen's private estate, comes in. The central ownership that she has is, is land and buildings, uh, and, and she owns a good chunk of the country. The duchy is basically big tracts of land. What's in the duchy of Lancaster and what's her own and, you know, in some other holding and what belongs to the, the country, I'm not exactly sure how it's divided. And I think that's a de- there's some deliberate obfuscation there because I think by tradition as a British person we understand that the royal family lives in a certain amount of luxury the pomp and circumstance is central to the whole concept of monarchy and to fund this the money they make needs to be big the queen earns around 20 million from these royal properties each year it's a huge amount of money but the duchy of Lancaster is over 50,000 hectares of prime real estate, some of which is in London, and the most valuable is the Savoy estate, which is in the capital. Then again, the Queen has many mouths to feed. In some cases, she gives a house to her own children. I think people who are in line to the throne are prioritised, and I think there's a sense beyond that that people are going to have to look after themselves now. So, Prince Charles has been financially independent since he was 21. He has the Duchy of Cornwall. That's a private fortune that he has helped grow into a nearly billion-dollar business. But the Queen's three other children have depended on some combination of their mother's largesse, government funding, and the money they made in their own careers. And Erin, it's just as well the Prince of Wales has made a vast fortune, because when it comes to his sizable entourage, he's quite specific. 
because he likes to travel the world with his harp player goes with him and his watercolorist goes with him and there's a whole retinue of people. More about the unusual household expenses of the royals after the break. The firm, also known as Monarchy Inc., are the public faces of an estimated $28 billion empire. The goodwill of the people is essential to maintaining that empire, and this is helped along by making sure the royal brand continues to have a strong public image. I've been involved in a in a hospice charity in East Anglia, Children's Hospice, where William and Kate, you know, put tons and tons of effort. And actually, I host a dinner for the charity, which was predicated on if you gave some money here, you'd be invited to go to the, you know, black tie event. And I want to just tell you what it's like to be in that moment where they're giving a party. You and Rally again. We had this black tie dinner and there were 120 people and we were told how to divide into groups of 10. And so it was you know, whatever it is, 12 groups of 10 people, and each of those groups had a host, and the understanding was half the groups would have 15 minutes with Kate and the other half would have 15 minutes with William. And they're really working, right? They're singing for their supper very, very deliberately there, um, spending moments with each of these groups. And, you know, it's quite fun talking to William. He's an Aston Villa supporter. We talked about football. And, you know, that's a magical experience to have that just that. So they work. They work really, really hard. And, you know, whether it's visiting schools or visiting injured servicemen, I think most people in the UK believe that most of the royal family members are earning their keep. The royals can't be seen to be a drain on the public purse, and so they make a big show of paying their fair share. It's why the Queen decided voluntarily to pay income tax starting in 1992. And ever since the 90s, the royals have been much more transparent about their finances, right? Yeah, absolutely. They now publish their financial records annually, and we get to see every penny and how it's spent. So once a year, I go to a pretty long meeting at Buckingham Palace with the Keeper of the Privy Purse, who's in charge of royal budgets. And he takes us, the British press, through every bit of the royal family's expenditure. Now, as you would expect, that goes up with events like royal weddings and important overseas tours. I always look at the travel costs because they're a good indicator of who's been working the hardest. And it's not surprising that most years, Prince Charles tops that list with the highest travel expenditure. That's because he works the hardest. Erin, did you know one of the most expensive forms of travel is the royal train? It's apparently the Queen's preferred mode of transport because it's comfortable and luxurious. And get this, she has a special stepladder so that her corgis can get on and off the train. Ah, to be one of those corgis. I know, it's a life of luxury, right? Custom-made stepladders, no less. But joking aside, value for money is key to the monarchy's survival. And it's one of Charles's biggest preoccupations, particularly about the future and why he believes a streamlined monarchy that costs the taxpayer less is the only way that the royal family can really survive in the future. So, despite the cost of custom stepladders, the Queen really is known for her frugality. She's actually been known to keep the same barber jacket for decades at a time, occasionally getting it repaired. But the same hasn't always been said about other members of the royal family. Prince Andrew spent so recklessly on private planes that he was actually nicknamed Air Miles Andy. 
He and his former wife, Sarah Ferguson, only just settled a reported 6.6 million pound debt on a ski chalet in Switzerland. I think the royal family is, is hypersensitive to, to, to not being seen to be mm-hmm. too extravagant. It must be a balancing act, right? They have to behave in a way that demonstrates that they are the royal family, but they simultaneously have to behave in a way that demonstrates that they recognize the health and well-being and, and, and the more limited means of many of their subjects. Kate has had really good press for dressing somewhat modestly. Um, and, and I think there are, there are little tricks that different family, royal family members use to try to seem appropriate. There's been quite a lot of coverage, which is not an accident, about um, uh, Prince Charles having his suits mended, keeping his suits for 30 years. Now, again, it's a bit incongruous, right, because he likes to travel the world with his harp player goes with him and his watercolorist goes with him and there's a whole retinue of people. Um, but, but, but he likes it to be known that he doesn't want the toothpaste tube to be thrown up. He famously fills the toothpaste tube up to the end to, so there's no wasted toothpaste. So Charles has a harp player, but he doesn't waste toothpaste. Unlike you and me, however, Charles does have a staff that attends to his every need. The legend goes that when he broke his arm playing polo, his trusty valet would squeeze toothpaste onto his toothbrush every morning. Well, that might not surprise you that he does actually have a bigger entourage than many other members of the royal family. His mother has been known to take the opposite approach, and I think most people would be surprised by how small the Queen's entourage is and how low maintenance the monarch actually is. She reportedly goes around the palace turning out the lights just to save money. And when she's not on official duties and not on the royal train, she travels around in relative modesty in a car. I've been actually been to church with the Queen in Scotland, and she has one or two protection officers with her, and she drives up to the church in a in a um, in a Land Rover. The Windsors do love to drive their Land Rovers. They can look as normal as, say, their fellow Land Rover fans, the Middletons, and they can look patriotic while they're at it. And it's very low-key. There actually isn't a huge, compared to what you'd see with a, with a politician traveling in, in the U.S., um, they pride themselves on being a bit understated in that regard. And the reason for this need to prove they're deserving of public funds? Well, like so many things we've raised so far, you can bring it back to Diana. I think Diana changed everything, actually. And I think, I think Diana was the first one who said it's really important that we modernize and act more like human beings who have jobs. Otherwise, we won't be accepted forever, and nor should we. And that was you know, very painful, even for the Queen, for sure. You know, I think actually it was probably the best thing that ever happened to the royal family, because if there hadn't been a Diana, then, uh, then the whole enterprise would have been seen as entirely illegitimate by a bigger portion of the population. The loudest advocates for changing the firm are an ocean away. And they're engaging in a bit more consumption now. But after Meghan and Harry spoke to Oprah, plenty of people behind the scenes objected to their portrayal of the firm and even the factual basis of their complaints. I know that Team Sussex was more sneakers than suits, but do you have any insight into exactly what went wrong between the couple and the palace staffers, Katie? Have you got an hour for another podcast, Erin? <laughs> I think... Ultimately, they didn't like being dictated to by the firm. They wanted their own household, which they got, but they didn't like being under the control of Buckingham Palace. It honestly sounds a lot like the work situation at Kensington Palace in the 1980s. 
Before Diana joined the family, Charles' staffers were already pretty frustrated with his disorganization, his, like, overly broad set of interests, and his tendency to go rogue in confrontational speeches. But after the wedding, everything got so much worse. Staffers resented the way that they were dragged into the couple's discord, and after a few years, a handful of Charles's longest-serving courtiers resigned, and the marriage just kept getting worse. The metaphor of men in suits or the shadowy halls of power just fall flat when you recognize that all of these jobs, regardless of their particular roles and titles, come down to making the royals look good. And I think that this speaks to the true nature of the royals' power. Its foundation rests on the shifting sands of public opinion, and everybody from the queen down to the palace's social media managers understand that. That's the not-so-easy job of the palace PR team. The comms office's chief role is to protect preserve and promote the royal family and its image, which is everything. But even with all their wealth and the best courtiers money can buy, there were some problems money just couldn't fix. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look at Prince Andrew, the Epstein scandal, and more problems that money can't solve. I think it already has really tarnished them. I mean, they are scrambling. I don't think they know how to handle it, and they haven't handled it very well. I mean, the fact that he did that interview where he made certain denials that have since been proven false, I mean, it, it shows you that they have not only a public relations problem, but they have a credibility and truth problem. All that on the next episode of Dynasty, The Windsors. Dynasty is hosted by Katie Nichol and me, Aaron Vanderhoof, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with something else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstadt are our editors. Rob Dozier, Zoe Edwards, Chica Ayers, and Sylvie Lubeau are our producers. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Basha Curtin and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And E.K. Agbatola, Lily Hambly, and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators. This episode was engineered by Josh Gibbs, and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Karlevsky. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Patrick Jeffson, Robert Hazell, and Ewan Relly. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com forward slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.